This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's time for our Zoomer Squad. It's all about party platforms today with the Ontario Liberals releases of releasing a fully costed platform and NDP leader Andrea Horvath releasing what she is calling her platform to the north. Now, CARP has a recently released platform of its own. It's called the CARP 5 and it includes very quickly fund better home care, transform long-term care, drastically cut health care wait times, make vaccines more accessible, and fund better fitness for seniors. So how does that stack up against the dozens of announcements we are hearing these days? I want to hear from you. 416 Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. And now I'm joined by David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hi everyone, welcome. Hi, Hi Libby. Thank you. Hi Libby. Uh, so, Bill, let's begin with you. I know that you are in the Maritimes, but, you know, all of the parties uh, have made at least some of the right noises. What's your take on this? Well, they've, uh, they're all making uh, promises right, left and center. No different than we've seen before with what happens after the election that'll, that'll really uh, count. But a couple of interesting things uh, for uh, Carb. One is that uh, uh, only the Conservative Party seems to have recognized that although health care issues are a top priority and concern, and certainly for uh, CARP, they are, people are really worried about their financial stability. And we haven't seen from the Liberals or the NDP a lot about that, almost to the point that uh, maybe we should have put that in our top uh, Five, because all the surveys that we do at CARP and the surveys that we've seen from from other organizations show that financial concern, whether or not they're going to be able to have enough money to afford to keep living these days, is becoming huge with people, from gas prices to rising uh, food costs. And none of the parties really seem to have recognized that yet. And I think this could be uh, a major uh, point as we get closer to Election Day. Well, you know, funny you should mention that just a few minutes before air, I got a press release from the PCs, and they are going to increase the Ontario Disability Support Program by 5%. That's the promise. There's been a lot of uh, lobbying for that. Uh, it's obviously not necessarily age-dependent, uh, David, does that answer any of those questions for you? For that group, and I think he's also said he's indexing it to inflation yeah. going forward. So there's some recognition that costs are going up. I think that the problem here that all three parties are facing, and I completely agree with Bill on what the concern is, the problem is that if I'm a provincial government and I don't control the Bank of Canada uh, interest rates and I don't control the money supply, I'm a little bit more constrained with, you know, what I can do. But the Liberals today came out with rent control, which is already there, but in a two-tier way. So there's there's some paying attention to we've got to get our costs down. But it still is, in as I can see, a very much of a promise-related, spending-related, here we go into an election, I'm going to do these things at this this expenditure, and I don't think there's a uh, an appetite between now and June the second to say I'm not going to promise you anything, but we're going to lower your cost of living. I don't think any of them dare do that, uh, as opposed to giving away more goodies. Well, uh, Peter, you know the, the first 
three parts of the CARP-5 have to do with healthcare. And like I said, I'm hearing the right noises. What's your take on how the parties stack up on home care? And this it says transform long-term care, not build the same old, same old. And it says drastically cut healthcare wait times, which are a huge problem coming out of COVID. Yeah, so so the the interesting thing is the language of in in all three uh among all three parties um home care is is a top priority for each of the parties and this hasn't been the case in past elections that I can remember um it it seems to me it it's a you know it's it's a need um that became clear when uh when the nursing homes failed to deliver the proper kind of care that people need and also carp been hammering this point for ages, you know, home care. We need we need a better home care system. We need more funds to go to home care. We need more workers. We need more coordination. CARP has been hammering that message for ages, and it's finally uh, landed at the top of the agenda of all three parties. So that that's a really good sign, and and it sort of suggests that there's going to be movement on it. Um, whether you know. Uh, you know, we we don't know whether they'll fulfill their promise, but it, but they, it's it's on the radar, and they're talking about it seriously, all three parties. So that that's a really uh, that's a really sort of interesting development that I've noticed. Um, and in terms of long term care, two of the parties, the Liberals and the NDP, say they want to end the for profit element of uh, of long term care. So um, they've staked a, a much different approach than the Conservatives. And um, I, I'm I'm a bit leery about, you know, abandoning for-profit long-term care just because, um, you know, you know, I, the government just doesn't have the money, I don't think, to build however many new beds it needs, and it's going to rely on partnerships in the private sector, and I, I think it's a bit naive to think that we can just cancel the, um, you know, for-profit long-term care. And, and think that that's going to solve the problem. So, so it's a different approach by the Liberals and NDP versus the Conservatives, but uh, it looks like they're taking the, those two issues seriously anyway. Uh, Bill, in terms of home care, yes, they've all said it's at the top of the agenda, but for instance, the Liberal promise is two to three times uh, bigger in terms of cash dollars than the uh conservative one. So is is that how you would make a judgment on that based on the actual money? Or no, I, I don't think so. Uh, Libby is as you as you hinted at the real uh, issue on home care is the people to deliver it. And although all the, uh, the parties are are promising to do something about having more, uh, more staff available, more PSWs, more more nurses, more trained people. None of the three parties has really come out with a firm platform on how they're going to do that and how they're going to rate it. In fact, much of it uh, means paying higher wages in the government-supported areas, which is just going to steal people from the family-funded home care that many people also have to uh, depend on and won't improve the overall uh, ability for people to get quality quality home care, and none of the parties have come up with a real uh, plan for doing something about getting more people to uh, deliver. There have been all kinds of suggestions from uh, from other people, uh, uh, more uh, more immigration, better, better, uh, better training, uh, different definition of uh, who these people are, but uh, they haven't really looked into it. And and it looks to us like uh, none of them have, although they're giving lip service to better home care, none of them have really delved into it to see what they think will really work in terms of improving home care. David, in light of that, you know, what are you telling members? How do they sort through it then? Well, I think you have to um, ask the candidates, what are you actually, are you going to commit to this? Is this something you're willing to be measured by? Um, because obviously, if you look at the calendar, all I can do if I'm running for, I say, if you vote for me, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. What's good here is that the public mood seems to be 
more toward let's see what we can measure let's take let's really see what happened here in a concrete way as opposed to because if it's just promises i mean no party's going to come out against this no party's going to say we want worse home care so it's easy i'm a little bit i have to confess and uh, cynical on this and i have a, a reason there's 626 long-term care homes in the province. There's 30,000 people on the waiting list. It's a very focused, ugly, easy-to-look-at situation. How how nice it is, not nice is not the right word, how convenient it is, I'm a politician, to shift the focus to a broad, diffused, hard to measure, hard to get a handle on home care. I love, the longer we can talk about home care, it means we're not talking about this terrible blight called long-term care. So I think it's a little bit bait and switch. They found some language that they can all like. They got an argument nobody can be opposed to. Better home care, sure, right, here's some money. And I, I don't think they have figured it out. I think they see it as a, uh, if I can shine the spotlight over millions of people in various situations getting care at home and a Away from the 30,000 people waiting for beds in obsolete, rundown, bad facilities that's going to take me years to fix, where would you rather have the spotlight? And I think all the parties are kind of playing that game a little bit. I'm sorry if I sound cynical about it. Well, funny you should mention that. I'm looking at a tweet, (laughs) and I have to say... I'm not familiar with this person who tweeted, so I'm going to assume that they reported a comment accurately. And it's headline breaking. I don't think it's breaking. It says, during a campaign stop, Ontario's premier is asked what message he has for people who lost loved ones to COVID. Premier Ford stated, quote, there would be less deaths if the liberals who ran things before me did a better job getting the province ready for COVID. Uh, so, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think there's always a statue of limitations on uh, blaming the people that came before you. And I think it has been arrived at. It's true and it's not true. I mean, it's, 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 they have to take some responsibility. And they did get rid of the minister at the time. And they did do a terrible job with what they had. And simultaneously, they inherited a mess of years of neglect and reports that piled up and nobody paid attention to. So he's latching on to the half of the argument that you know works for him and is eager to move on from the second half of what uh, his government itself did, which is not that impressive, to put it mildly, especially at the beginning. Peter? Yeah, well, um, what, what is the statute of limitations, I wonder? Like, <laughs> is it like the, the, the premier before you were elected, or is it, you know, the term before you were I, I don't know what the statute, but they'll keep blaming. the, the You know, uh, Ford is now calling Del Duca the, the uh, Del Duca win uh, liberals. So, He's tying he's tying everything bad to her that the liberals did, and he's and he's tying it to Del Duca as well. So, um, you yeah, know, there's a bit of justification in that. Yeah. <laughs> and, he's, and to he's, give he's him, blaming, a, he's blaming Wynn's decisions on Del Duca, though. So it's well, a little political it, strategy. But uh, whether the whether the voting public buys it, I'm not sure. Well, you know, they they were in that government. He was in that government. Uh, the the one thing I will give Del Duca credit for when I asked him about it, he didn't. He he said that they made mistakes or mistakes were made. Right. I don't know. That's that's getting close to taking responsibility. Yeah. So mistakes close, did it themselves. You know, well, it's like exactly. a passive verb. You know, mistakes were made. Well, exactly. Point. Mistake. Because I asked him about home care, and I, I've said this before. I've written about it. I think one of the big problems with home care is this vast amount of middlemen, middle people in there. And that is a creation and bureaucracy. And that is a creation of the Wynn government. So uh, he did recognize that mistakes were made. (laughs) So I don't know. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately, I think it's, it's hard to think that the NDP would cut back on bureaucracy <laughs> doesn't doesn't parse automatically well, they does even, it really? even <laughs> even the pcs won't i mean no. they they promised to that was a, a campaign promise and they've changed the names of things but the bureaucracy is still there yeah. uh so let us move along wait times i mean 
there has been some, you know, movement on wait times. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's a capacity issue with, with nurses, with doctors, with actual equipment and operating rooms. It's true. I don't know what they can do. Um, we're calling at CARP for, again, measurement. Why can't we have the same wait times as other OECD single-payer systems that are spending less as a percentage of GDP on healthcare than we are? So we're, CARP is not saying we've got some utopian, impossible to arrive at, we'll be the only jurisdiction in the world that does it this fast. We're saying other countries, especially in Europe, who are not considered you know, right-wing uh, dog-eat-dog cap- capitalistic country, the social med- socialized medicine, single-payer system, spending less per capita and getting uh, treatment and getting uh, much lower wait times. Why not us? And it really calls for a rethinking from top to bottom and not sort of nibbling away at the margins. And we think if we can get some candidates and some leaders to say, yes, three years from now, the wait time of X is going to become X minus, hold them accountable to hard numbers, that will be uh, the win at this stage of the game. Well, you know, that that's a, a long-term ask. You know, I'm thinking that if three years from now we've caught up from COVID to where we were before, that, no, we got to do better than that. That, that will be, uh, you know, that'll be good <laughs> given where we are now. And just uh, before I get the other guy's take on it, a, a program note, we are getting some new numbers on wait times tomorrow from the uh, Canadian Institute of Health Information coming out tomorrow. We'll be discussing it here, but uh, we haven't. Uh, I, I've, From what I could glean <laughs> as a preview, we have not cut, uh, come back from COVID, Bill. No, no, we haven't. And, and wait times is a huge issue, but much uh, a much more important issue than the par- any of the parties seem to be giving it, because wait times mean that people have gone undiagnosed, which means that uh, uh, illness is going to increase until we can get wait times under control. So David's absolutely right. The only way to manage it is to uh, to work at reasonable numbers, one step at a time, to get back get to a level not not back to where we were before, but better than we were before in terms of uh, of, uh, of having less less wait times. And for any of the uh, parties to suggest that they're going to quickly improve uh, wait times is is unreasonable. And uh, what they need to do is, is start a start a plan that's going to put pressure on all the uh, systems that offer uh, these uh, these services and make sure they're moving people through uh, more more quickly and nobody has come up with that kind of uh, plan yet so uh, uh, I'm I'm as suspicious as uh, as David is that they're they really have any uh, opportunity that they see yet to know what they're going to do to really uh, lower the, the, the wait times. Well, you know, it's happening in certain areas, and it's not being dictated by government. Last week, I had a very interesting talk. There were some new cancer statistics, and you know there's a big worry, and it's more than a worry, that there will be an increase in later-stage cancers because of all the screening that that went by the wayside during COVID. And I had three top-notch oncologists who are practicing, and they all said, it's not just catching up. We have to do it differently and innovate, and they're doing it. They're starting to do it with more virtual things, more technology. So I think it's happening, but honestly, I don't think that it's going to happen kind of dictated by government. Well, it's not. It's also not going to happen um, by policy as normal. Okay, here the COVID's over, and here's my platform. Now we're going to fix this. We're going to fix this. And I'd like to suggest, and one of the reasons that we did the CARP five, and one of the reasons are we're telling our members to make sure every all candidates meeting that you attend, if you can, uh, you you post this to the candidates. And here's here's the analogy. 
When COVID came along, just look at how unconventional it was to arrive at these vaccines. There was like a war effort mentality. And we can debate, you know, who did what, which politician, leader, whether they short-circuited certain things, they speeded up certain tests. The whole effort was galvanized to achieve something that normally would take three, four, five, six years or longer in a year. They treated it like a wartime crisis that called for unusual thinking, unusual measures. They need to do that with health care in this province. They need to get together and say between home care, reimagining long-term care homes, fixing wait times, we cannot have a business as usual siloed, a million here, a billion over there, something way back yonder. They've got They've got a lead, and I hope that the next Minister of Health, whoever that may be, adopts a crisis mentality to this. And that's one of the reasons that we came up with the CARB-5, to really shake it up and say, look, this can't just be incrementalism anymore. Hmm. Uh, Is is that going to help? If enough votes are attached to it, I think it won't hurt. (laughs) You know, Libby, um, I, I seem to remember, and maybe, Bill, you can help me out with this, um, wait times were a huge issue back, say, 15 years ago for CARP. Does that, and, yes. um, you know, they, it, it was becoming sort of catastrophic in certain areas on, on getting knee surgery or hip replacement surgery. And, and um, the, the, you know, CARP at the time, you know, made, made this public. A lot of other groups joined on. And um, as far as I know, they addressed the problem and wait times went down to an acceptable level. So it can be done. Um, it's just a matter of getting all the important decision makers on the same page, and and you know, uh, you know, with all with all the innovation we have, with all the technology we have, we, I'm sure we can do it. But it's going to take some some uh, visionary planning, and that's the big question: whether any of these governments can offer that kind of visionary planning. Well, it's also yeah. going to take, uh, you know. Uh, how are you going to retain nurses? You can't do any of this stuff without nurses. Right. Nurses are right. quitting. And by the way, it is nursing week. <laughs> so <laughs> happy nursing week to all the nurses that are listening. But, uh, you know, so there, there are staffing issues. There's money issues in terms of, you know, the, the wages for nurses are still capped. So it it really is going to take more even than innovation. Well, that's why I'm saying a crisis mentality that brings all the threads together in one place at one time and say, we can't fix this by tweaking a thousand disconnected silos. And that's what they're trying to do. Oh, I got an announcement today. I got an announcement today. It's not that any of the announcements are bad. It's not like he can't, we're going to hire more nurses. No, don't do that. Of course, do that. Of course, bring in more PSWs. Of course, spend more money on this. But where's the impetus, the real leadership to say, you know, we have a chance. This is a generational issue now. And we have to adopt the same mentality we did in coming up with the COVID vaccine. Yeah, yeah Dave, uh, Peter is, is uh, correct that there was an improvement in lower body surgeries uh, after uh, a focus uh, on it uh, prior to uh, prior to COVID. And it happens because they coordinated and got together uh, with the with the doctors, with the nurses, with more operating rooms, with changing the hours that they were available and they were being used. It can be done if they they focus on the entire uh, problem. And we've seen through through COVID that government can move quickly when it really uh, wants to, and we want them to keep up that same same attention and and focus on each of these uh, issues and and treat them with all the players at the table and everybody contributing because just throwing money at it isn't going to do it. You know, I have a question about the traditional way that campaigns are run. And I'm wondering if that gets in the way with some serious work. So you plan out all these events, I'm putting that in air quotes, and all of these events require announcements, and it's kind of piecemeal to me, and it detracts from getting a sense of the overall strategy. It's a really good point, Levy. It's sort of like... It's, if there it's, is one. 
Well, <laughs> see, that's the key. You just that's the money quote right there. It detracts from the overall strategy, assuming there is an overall strategy, right. and that's a big leap. That's a big <laughs> leap. Yeah. I'm afraid, Peter. You were saying? <laughs> Sorry, no, I, I agree. Sorry, like, Peter. We're, like putting all these announcements, as David said, they're just distractions. Like they're they're sort of. You know, they're they're sort of couching the fact that we there is no sort of central vision plan. You know, going forward, it's just a whole bunch of different things that appeal to different categories, and not not sort of for the good of the province as a whole going forward. And that and and it, it's to your point, Levy. That that's how election campaigns are run and and successfully run, and they're not going to abandon that yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's coming, <laughs> but who knows when? Yeah. Not for this election. I'm I'm looking at the clock. We're almost out of time here. So uh, let us start to wrap things up, Bill. Uh, so you're asking members to check their candidates against the CARP-5. Uh, what should they be particularly looking for in the week ahead? They should go to our uh, CARP website and look at uh, carp.ca slash the CARP. Five, look at those five things, talk to the candidates about it at the at the door, at the all-candidates meeting, phone them and talk to them. If they're not willing to support these five basic changes that have to happen, then change your choice of candidate. Peter? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty handy, actually, because oftentimes when candidates come to the door, I, I just don't know what to say or what to ask them. But now I, now I have a handy list. I, can, I have five things to ask them. <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> they ring at dinner time. <laughs> David, That's last, right. last word to you. Let my meal get cold while I sit here and talk. Right. To you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but it's it's really trying to get them to commit to the urgency of this, so that it isn't just desirable but urgent. And it is for our members for CARP for the lens with which we're looking at the future. This is very very urgent stuff. Okay. That's all the time we have for the Zoomer Squad. This week, we'll be back here again. Next week, we'll still be talking about the election, election, but I wonder what will happen between now and then, because these things can be very dynamic. Thank you so much, Peter Mugridge, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. Thank you, Libby. Who's sitting across from me in studio. (laughs) Nice to see you, David. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, it's been a while since we talked about the, about Ukraine and what is happening there. Yesterday was a very important day, and we will get into that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Canadian flag fly over the streets of Kiev once again is yet another testament to the incredible strength and solidarity of uh, Canadians and Ukrainians and how we continue to be with them. Well, that's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at the reopening of our embassy in Kiev during his surprise visit to Ukraine yesterday. In addition, he promised more weapons and other assistance, and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky lauded what he called the special relationship between our two countries. Trudeau had to share the spotlight with U.S. First Lady Jill Biden and you too. Uh, And they were also on surprise visits. It came on Victory Day, a huge holiday in Russia meant to mark the country's victory over the Nazis. And many in the West had feared that Vladimir Putin would use the occasion to annex part of Ukraine or announce a general mobilization. Neither of those things happened. And observers report the parade was smaller than usual, with an air display canceled at the last minute. Now, G7 is also promising to end all energy imports from Russia. But meanwhile, the war is grinding on with no end in sight. A new Angus Reid poll finds a majority of us support what the government is doing, but nearly 40% say Canada should do more. So what do you think? The numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. 
And now let's go to Dr. Paul Good, Macmillan Chair in Russian Studies at Carleton University, Peter Sturin, President of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto Branch, and Phil Vasilevsky, a 2022 Templeton Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Annapolis, Maryland. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being with us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, Thanks for having us. So let me start with Peter. Uh, What did you think yesterday when you saw Trudeau and Christian Freeland and Melanie Jolie there, along with you two and Jill Biden and the reopening of our embassy? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's exactly what Ukraine needs at this point. So obviously the community is, is very happy and very encouraged and, and actually thankful, thankful to the Canadian government uh, for the vast amount of aid they actually announced yesterday. Um, we know without all this critical support, um, this war is going to um, grind Ukraine down both physically, uh, emotionally, uh, but even economically, uh, the, the theft that is going on in eastern Ukraine, uh, just the other day they were talking about hundreds of thousands of liters of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, oil, cooking oil, uh, uh, sunflower oil that's a major export. That was stolen by the Russian, not to mention uh, hundreds of thousands of, of kilos of grain that has been. So, so Russia is trying everything in its power. Uh, now that they know they can't win the war, it's obvious that they can't. But what they can do is try to destroy Ukraine, and 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 then and then pick up the pieces. Maybe when everything when there's really nothing left. So, uh, thank you to Canada, U.S., and all the other countries that are stepping up to help right now. Well, the level of destruction is is truly vast and 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 very upsetting to look at. I I might add, Doctor Paul Good, though. A lot of people were expecting that Victory Day would bring things that are a lot worse. What's your take on why that did not happen? Well, I think that uh, there was a lot of speculation, in part because of the course of the war, because things were obviously not going in the way that Russia had planned, that the fact that Victory Day is so significant in Russia, the expectation was that in some way, shape or form, that would have to be addressed. And one way might be finally escalating to a full mass mobilization for the war effort. I don't. I never really thought that was likely, and in part because to the extent that surveys are reliable coming out of Russia, really only about 1% of the population was actually worried about a mass call-up. And I think that tells us something very essential, which is that for most people, most ordinary Russians, the war is actually a very distant experience. It's not something that people keenly feel themselves. Um, and actually calling for a mass mobilization in the midst of the Victory Day celebration would have been a real shock to the system, um, and perhaps even more of an admission of defeat than not mobilizing the, uh, the masses. So uh, not entirely unexpected, I think, for people who follow Russia closely. Um, the other thing that we thought might happen would be at the announcement of new war aims, and we didn't see that either. And so what we get is more sort of a greatest hits of Putin's past sort of uh, themes, historical revisionism, blaming the U.S. and NATO, allegations of Nazis in Ukraine, so on and so forth, but nothing really new uh, for Russia and for Russians to hang their hat on. Phil Vasilevsky, were you expecting more? Uh, there was also talk that they might just announce an annexation. And uh, why do you think the parade was actually smaller than a lot of people expected? Well, getting to the parade probably the small number was because of limited amount of uh, forces that they could bring together uh, in order to have a parade. Uh, almost the entire amount of the Russian army, its tactical units, have been sent uh, to this uh, war. And the amount of people left in, in, um, in other places is minimal. Um, regarding what was announced, I agree uh, with the previous comment that we had three dogs that didn't bark in this speech. One was there was no declaration of war. Two, there was no announcement of a massive mobilization of Russian society to support it. And three, there was no real mention of any war aims, either repetition of the original aims that Putin laid out on February 24th for, quote-unquote, denazification and demilitarization, um, but also nothing regarding what Putin wants to accomplish with this still, as it's called, special military operation. 
Okay, let us take a call from Orest in Etobicoke. Hello, Orest. Hi there. I'm calling about a situation of Ukrainians trying to cross into Poland. Uh, This is a person that is trying to cross into Poland near Lviv, and the guards are demanding a $1,500, in effect, bribe to let them through. Now, I'm just wondering whether this is known by the Polish government and whether this is, you know, it sounds ludicrous to me and just somebody trying to get rich. Uh, I'm just wondering what can be done about that situation. What is that you're saying this is happening? These are Polish guards? These are Polish guards, I would imagine, going into Poland. Okay, well, uh, I am unaware about it. I'll see if any of our guests are aware of this. Uh, not a huge surprise if in wartime corruption, there's corruption, but uh, I can't say. Peter, have you heard anything like that? No, there there was some talk at the very, very beginning of the war, uh, and when martial law came into place, uh, that obviously men between the age of 19 and 60 were not allowed out of the country. Uh, some were actually able to leave because they paid a bribe to get get out. That was addressed very quickly, apparently on both uh, on both sides, both governments. And uh, I have uh, close friends that are actually in Poland now, and don't mention of any of those issues actually. I spoke with a gentleman from the Polish Congress yesterday, and he told me uh, that he was actually in Lviv just a few days ago, and the border seemed to be moving very nicely, smoothly, without the usual very long lineup. So I think it's just probably some, some you know, individual stories that have come out, but uh, people down on the ground tell us a totally different thing, and things are going very well. Okay, well, that's that's good to hear. With a lot of these things, they're not verified. There's, you know, so uh, just a note of caution on, on all things like that. We've got to take a break, but uh, before we go to break, the numbers, if you have something to say about the events and the turn they are taking, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be back with our expert panel on Ukraine after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the situation in Ukraine as the war grinds on after a very special day yesterday where the prime minister made a surprise visit, reopening our embassy in Kiev. Jill Biden, the U.S. First Lady, also made a surprise visit. She met with the Ukrainian First Lady and you too performing in a subway that has served as a bomb shelter. A thing, it seems that Victory Day in Russia passed without some of the worst outcomes materializing. But on the other hand, uh, it's hard to see an end in sight to this. Dr. Paul Good, do you see anything that could bring an end? Well, there's nothing immediately that suggests that Russia has a clear idea of what it wants to get out of the war at this point. The problem is that the original aims that were declared were obviously shaped around the assumption that Russia would be able to enter Ukraine, that it would face little to no resistance or might even be welcomed by Ukrainians, and that it would be able to quickly move into Kiev and install a public regime. Obviously, that was not the case. And as a result, Russia completely refocused its efforts on eastern portion of the country. But the goals remain un- un- undeclared and undelimited. And so it's, it's, Russia hasn't sort of announced new war aims. It hasn't renounced its previous war aims, but hasn't stated exactly what it wants. And that's a little bit dangerous, because at this point, then, we don't really know exactly what are the limits um, and what, what are the lines, ultimately, that, that Russia will not cross. Certainly, it's behavior in Ukraine to date suggests that there aren't a lot. There aren't a lot of restraints and not a lot of lines that it won't cross. And so I don't see this likely ending um, in the near future. Well, yeah, that was my question. Are there lines it won't cross? How do you see it, Phil Vasilevsky? No, I have to agree with Dr. Good. Furthermore, it's not so much what they say, which is dangerous enough. It is what they are currently doing in the occupied areas of Ukraine that should give us real concern. 
Uh, the first has been the forceful relocation of over a million Ukrainian citizens out of the country under the Geneva Pro- uh, Conventions and occupying power uh, is responsible for the care of the people in the area it takes over. Uh, and this is unfortunately very reminiscent uh, to the forced deportations of Poles, Balts, and other peoples um, during World War II when the Red Army came into their, their territory. The second part is it seems that they are, um, as one Russian legislator told a group in Kherson just this week, that Russia is there to stay. And everything from the uh, holding or the planning of holding of so-called referendum uh, to the planting of re- or reviving of statues of Lenin in town squares all seem to indicate that the, uh, the Russian authorities have uh, no desire uh, to leave this territory, that they're trying to incorporate it into Russia. Um, and this is directly uh, opposite of what President Putin said on February 24th, that Russia has no territorial territorial uh, ob- objectives in Ukraine, but their actions seem to be uh, countering what has been openly stated. Peter, there seems to be a consensus, or at least what I'm reading, that there's a belief that as long as the West keeps arming and supplying Ukraine, it can hold out. Are you confident in that? Absolutely. Uh, it's certainly, uh, you, you've seen the will of Ukrainians to fight, uh, not just uh, not just the men and women on the front lines, but virtually everyone else in the country, uh, if not helping out the army or in the, in the struggle. Um, I, I think we all remember the very beginning and when it wasn't certain what was going to transpire, if the cities were going to be invaded. Oh, you had you had hundreds of people coming out into town squares and making Molotov cocktails. Um, the country is mobilized. We'll fight. We'll we'll do it till the very end. There's still close to 40 million people in Ukraine. They do not want to be part of Russia. They never have aspired to be part of Russia. In fact, Ukraine has been struggling with independence for a very long period of time, and this is it. We they either do it now or Russia will, as they've done with Crimea and other territories, make it their own, convert it. They're actually in Mariupol. They're changing street signs from Ukrainian and English. They're nicely bilingual, and they're putting up Russian street signs, even though there's not not much left of that poor town. But that's exactly what this is. This is a pure land grab and to eliminate as many Ukrainians as possible within the territory, because as Putin has said many times over, Ukraine is not a real thing for the, for him and his people. They don't believe Ukraine has the right to exist, nor do the people uh, have the right to exist. So here it is, full-blown genocide, deporting millions of people. Um, you know, I, I, what other war crime can they possibly come up with? Although, unfortunately, they probably will come up with something else that'll shock us. Dr. Good, in terms of the Russian population, uh, you know, we were saying earlier that the war is still a bit distant from them. Is that going to continue? Uh, th- these are stringent sanctions. Will there come a point when they may stop believing their leaders? It's uh, Well, first of all, for people to start feeling the effects of sanctions, for it will take probably another couple of months or perhaps longer for them to really start filtering their way through into the interior of the country insofar as affecting people's day-to-day lives. Having said that, Russia has been under Western sanctions since 2014, and there is an entire uh, rhetoric, if not a dictionary, of how to respond to sanctions um, that's bound up with notions of import substitution, uh, we we don't need the West. We can do better without Western products. We can pivot to Asia. And these sorts of things are being used regularly in the press, on the regional level especially, where people are most likely to start complaining about sanctions. And so in a sense, Russian society has been fireproofed against the effect of sanctions for quite some time, at least in terms of the rhetorical justifications and the sorts of things that deflect blame away from the Russian government. And this has been a standard practice, actually, that the way that Russia has responded to sanctions in the past has been to sort of pay the cost for foreign policy adventurism, but to spread the pain amongst the population. 
Um, and in doing so, they refocused blame attribution away from the Kremlin and onto Western entities, especially the United States, NATO, and the European Union. And so it's less likely at this point in time that it would actually have some sort of domestic blowback. Now, even if there were, the other problem is that Russia is an autocracy. There are no political alternatives, effectively, to the Kremlin. There's no alternatives to, to the ruling party United Russia. There are formal systemic parties, but they have all fallen in line basically behind the war. And so there is really no political alternative within Russia that could champion um, uh, an end to the war and seek a, uh, a change to the sanctions regime. Hmm. Phil Vasilevsky, it's, it's been said this is just the beginning. Do you think that Russia has designs beyond Ukraine? If it did before, I think those designs have been put on hold because they can barely accomplish what they set out. As a matter of fact, they have failed at any uh, objective measure of uh, military prowess of achieving their initial war aims. And now they have taken and trying to basically taken shortened or smaller war aims of just seizing a patch of Ukrainian territory from the Crimea to Russia proper itself. So even though there has been rhetoric of Russian generals saying we're going to continue on to Odessa, to Moldova, link up to Transniester, uh, that is just writing checks that they cannot cash. Um, that is right now not physically possible. The, one of the key ironies of this war is regarding the war aims of denazification and demilitarization. Russia itself is in the process of demilitarizing itself by destroying its army, by destroying its military, by destroying its military capability. And the sanctions that have been put on by the West, by the liberal democracies, is going to prevent it from its factories and its military industrial complex from being able to replace what has been lost to date in this war. And there are much, many more losses to come. Dr. Good, do you agree with that? Well, I think there's there is uh, definitely an aspect that Russia is weakening its own military capabilities by throwing them against this wall, uh, by, th by throwing them into a war with, with ever-shifting war aims. And what's not helping the situation is that obviously Putin has become closely involved in the war planning um, to such an extent that you know, he is in a sense repeating the errors of past Soviet leaders as well, um, of getting too far involved in the details and as a result, sacrificing a lot of Russian lives in the process. But this doesn't necessarily mean that you have a change and commitment to the war. And the, the only thing that I think is really perhaps hopeful is, is because Russia is an autocracy, it can spin the media however it wants. It can claim ultimately you know, any, any gains short of what it originally proclaimed to be a success um, and try to carry that off. Um, ultimately, Though I, I don't think that changes the situation. It doesn't change the distribution of power or the balance of power in, in domestic politics within Russia. I read some really interesting editorial comments from Thomas Friedman in the New York Times. And it was after the most recent leak out of the states that said that it was American intelligence that helped Ukraine kill some Russian generals. And it said, hey, stop leaking. This is getting dangerous for the United States. So, Phil Vasilevsky, do you see the United States uh, going in more or pulling back? What, what, what's your reaction to that view? Uh, well, those matters in international relations that deal with intelligence sharing and that are best kept on a secret level between states, that being said, uh, the Pentagon has denied that any sort of targeting information on that level has been passed uh, to the Ukrainians. Uh, they're very careful about about this. Um, in a larger, and finally, in a, in a larger context with what should be going on, what the liberal democracies have been doing is exactly the right thing, and it should be continued until we have reached uh, a point where the Russians agree to return to the status quo ante of 24 February and end this war without any sort of restrictions on Ukrainian sovereignty. And if that is one thing that the West should stand firm on as it continues its support for Ukraine. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Good, don't they need to look like they have a victory? They do. And I think that's, you know, important to, to understand that 
this war was really begun as part of Putin's legacy project. Uh, he is completely unchallenged in domestic politics, and so, you know, I believe he felt very unconstrained in, in trying to pursue this. It's, it's part of his longstanding grievances against the what he considers to be the Western-imposed post-Cold War world order. The problem is that this is not the legacy project that he imagined, and now he's, he's lashed to it. His, his regime is existentially dependent upon the outcome of this war. So whatever comes of it, it has to be a success. And it's not just for Putin, it's for all of the people who have enabled him throughout the process. And so, you know, returning back to the status quo and ante, I think would be difficult to sell in some ways, although there, there are ways it could be done. I mean, even Khrushchev managed to spin the outcome of the Cuban Missile Crisis as a success for his own Politburo. So, you know, stranger things have happened. The thing that I think even harder to imagine, though, is how we can go back to the status quo of February 23rd, with Russia still having a toehold in the Donbass, and view that not as a potential future threat to Ukraine's future sovereignty. And I think that's a longstanding issue that still needs to be resolved, and I don't know that we can get there. Peter Storin, we were talking, or I was mentioning this Angus Reid poll, so more than 60% of Canadians support what our government is doing. I, I was surprised. 27% say they have personally donated to Ukraine, and nearly 40% say it's not enough. So what is the not enough? What more would you like to see our government do? Well, they've allocated funds. Uh, we know the, uh, a couple of weeks ago already they had the $500 million for military aid. Unfortunately, Canada doesn't have necessarily that much military aid that could be useful uh, to Ukraine. But the idea was to mobilize funds and actually purchase uh, weaponry in other parts of the world. Uh, we know the Ukrainians are using old Soviet weapons uh, like the T-72 tanks and others. Poland has transferred and such. So uh, what what Canada could be doing is moving on that file as quickly as possible. They need those weapons now. They need them yesterday. And uh, that's the only way, that's the only way this conflict will end. It will end when one side or the other wins militarily. And the whole world has made the decision, mostly, they want Ukraine to win this battle because the alternative is is horrific. Okay, that is all the time we have. Thank you so much, Phil Vasilevsky, Dr. Paul Good, and Peter Sturin. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.